Welcome to Descender from Klarna, a podcast where we dive deep into the design topics we all think about but don't talk about enough. I'm Melanie Leftbird, a product designer at Klarna. Each episode of our show this season, we have chosen a big global topic but hope to bring that conversation down to the real world as our designers reflect on how they're tackling it in their daily work lives. This week, we have Felipe and Ola to share their reflections on helping users build better financial habits. So Felipe Sabracci is a multidisciplinary and messy designer with experience in designing physical, graphic, and digital experiences. Back in his home country of Brazil, Felipe had his own sunglasses company before deciding to take off his shades and work as a design lead for a variety of local startups, as well as a mentor for the AWS Startup Mentorship Program. Before his time at Klarna, he led the B2B Savings and Funds product at Dreams in Stockholm. He's now a design lead in our Merchant Foundations domain, responsible for the direction and design strategy of our B2B product. You can find him on Medium, Instagram, and Twitter at Felipe Sabracci. So Felipe, how often have you broken out your sunglasses since uh, moving to Sweden? All right, so since moving to Sweden, not much, because I use glasses daily and I use a clip-on, so it's very easy very hard to, to break them. But before with my sunglasses company, it was a wooden sunglasses company. I used to break at least two every week. Nice. Our second participant we have is Ola Tritek, is a researcher who considers herself an advocate of users' needs, problems, and desires. Despite hailing from Poland, Ola is crazy about Balkan countries and when not practicing her Bulgarian, Macedonian, Serbian, or Croatian small talk, she is supporting her client making experience as a senior UX researcher, ensuring that consumers' perspectives are at the forefront of every product kickoff or design jam. Before Klarna, she was making the healthcare experience more human in a Warsaw-based startup called Doc Planner and helping job seekers find the right career opportunity in the German job board Stepsome. So Ola, what is your favorite Balkan food dish? And also, how many languages has your son picked up so far? Yeah, uh, great questions. Thanks. So regarding the Balkan food, I think Bulgarian banitsa, it's, um, it's my favorite. It's a salty cheese. I, I think I can describe it this way, but also pecheni chushki. It's a roasted peppers. The, I love the smell of it really. And yeah, my son, I'm trying not to expose him to so many languages because I'm kind of worried about him mixing up German and Polish all the time. And so he, he really starts one sentence in German and finishes in, in Polish. So we, we try to continue with these two languages plus English, and that's really enough. <laughs> Get them started young. Great. Well, I'm super happy to have you guys here. Let's kick it off. I, so I personally worked in fintech for, for many years, and I kind of feel that the financial industry is often scrutinized with nothing but big bad banks uh, who don't have the best interest of people. But I have managed to find a little bit of a, a thread of hope in working for products that truly strive to help users feel more in control of their money. Because I think when done right and with the right kind of ethical direction, giving people autonomy over their financial health is a really powerful thing. So uh, with that said, I'm curious with you two to dive a bit into how we really determine what is the best way to encourage healthy habits uh, and empower users without assuming that we know what is best for someone else's financial well-being. So I don't know, Felipe, how would you uh, define financial literacy and financial health? Yeah, I think let's talk about literacy first, because I think it really connected to financial health, like literacy is more an individual that has tools and knowledge or skill. To, to make like better informed financial decisions, I would say. So this is what I would say literacy. So you have like awareness of like tools and, and methodologies or even get knowledge of awareness and overall for your life. But financial wellness or health is, is a bit more complex. So 
is more like an individual that it has a a combination of security and freedom of choice for both the present and the future. Is somebody that can not can control them, but they they are aware of like the possibilities that they have in the present to to feel secure with their money, and then at the same time in the future looking for their future being. And at the same time, they have freedom of choice for in the present, for example, they have the freedom to, to choose, no, be having like full aware, awareness of their financial life and financial situation to make decisions and buy whatever they want at this moment. And in the future, at the same time, being prepared for things that are coming or they are planning big things with their financial situations for the future. This is how I would say it's a bit complex, but this is how we define both of them. Yeah, I, I think I definitely agree with the, with the knowledge part that, that is, this is one of the crucial factors of financial literacy, but I think it's not all. I think what, what financial literacy is about also is the, the behavior. So the, our consumer habits, for example, or also the, the whole attitude towards money. So Am I more thinking about short-term needs that I have, or I'm concentrating more on the long-term financial plans? So it's, it's also up to that. And I think it's a, it's a funny thing because in, in one of my last uh, studies, I heard a lot from people that they feel that like financial education, so this knowledge part is really missing in our society. And that that's something that they believe should be taught at school, but it isn't. At least I'm, I'm not sure if, uh, about different countries, but I'm sure about Germany and, and US at least. So the, the participants that I talked to, they had to learn finances really by trial, trial and error approach. And they obviously made some mistakes along, along the way. So that's why I, I completely agree with you, Felipe, that, that knowledge is the, is the key here to, to the financial uh, well-being and, and financial literacy. Yeah, Felipe, I'm curious, in your work with Dreams app, did you find the same thing, this sentiment of, of not ever really being taught about financial literacy? Yeah, yeah. And then I could also to make a parallel with Brazil, that is my home country. And then and in Sweden, we were focusing mostly on the Nordics and then we expanded on the time to other countries. But I mean... There's a pattern here in the society and overall. We, we learn how to spend money, we, but we don't really learn, like, you know, schools and overall about the money itself, like the money cycle, how does it affect your life? We know that it affects our life, but we, we were never taught, we are never taught in this school. And then it's something that we discuss in Brazil as well. At least in Brazil, it's because like having a financial education, financial education in school is, is important, especially for home things, about the groceries, how does it affect your life and then your decisions, something that we don't have, but it's a common pattern that happens in almost every Western country, at least. Do you feel then it's more important for everyone just to have this trial and error approach where they learn as they go, or do you feel like it's our role to be the educators here? When you say our role, what does that word mean? We're meaning here. Yeah. I mean, I think like kind of our role as designers, you know, should we All be right. taking on that, that responsibility of, of building the education? Cause it seems that. That's something that oftentimes we get questioned about. And, and I know even legally, we can't offer certain recommendations yeah. and advice within some apps because we don't have the, the proper knowledge. So where's that line between giving our insights, but also not assuming again, that we know what's best. Yeah. I think as designers, I don't believe that is our role, but if you're working in a, in a, in a FinTech or a financial company, I think it is our role. So it's, it can be a bit contradicted contradiction here. 
but we need to 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 deliver that right information to the user to make to uh, as as we talk what what the a financial literacy means is like making well making well informed decisions right so taking well informed decisions so I think it's part of our role as well and our responsibility with when we when we work in financial institutions definitely but but it's a combination I mean by ourselves and then based on my experience and the dreams. And also my previous experience in the car, I was working payment methods. I was discussing this, talking about this with Viola. I was working payment methods before. Then I went to Dreams to, 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 to work with a savings product and investment product. So what I was doing was, was I was helping people to spend their money. And then I went to Dreams to help them to save it. So it is, it definitely is our, our responsibility to help them to make better decisions, better informed decisions, but also it's a combination. I mean, we cannot do it ourselves. Like by ourselves, it's impossible to really help people to, to at, at least learn or increase their literacy around that. We can inform them, we can give them information, we can give, give them the content that they need, but educating them is, is a much bigger thing. Yeah, I, I was also thinking that this is the tricky part. Obviously, the responsibilities are on us. And since we are designing the solution, we should take care of any possible scenario that something goes wrong with it as well. And we should foresee that. But it is not so easy to change people's habit and, and their behavior, right? And this is the tricky part that we, especially I as a researcher, I know that to have s some impact on someone, First, we have to really understand them and understand their situation. So knowing what their current habits are, what stops people from saving or what makes them overspend and understanding how they feel about it. If, if they want to change it at all, it's, uh, it's the first step. It's, it's crucial to, to really start building a solution that will, that will be a response to this, what we've learned and to be attractive enough for people to consider switching their existing behavior or, and to start doing things differently. So we can definitely ensure that we first understand them. We prepare a solution that is ready and, and brings some value in the, in the context of their lives. And we do it with the best possible uh, intentions. At least, uh, at least that we should definitely take into consideration. I would just say to agree with you, especially because when I was at Dreams, we designers, we work there or we work there or I work there very close to behavioral scientists, because I think this is the main thing, right? So we really need to understand the context because I mean, even in the same country, we had so many different contexts there, but ages, life in, in, in which situation or which stage of your life you are. All of your, your literacy or like your financial necessities, they change business. And then we try to find patterns. So that's why we were closing. So we were working so closely to, to behavioral scientists to, to understand those nuances. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about that for both of you, uh, for you, Felipe, having worked with these behavioral scientists and in your work, all are doing now, I feel like a lot of times we assume that it's just generational or age related when it comes to differences in saving and spending, but curious of both of your reflections on how, what other factors you think play into to the habits people have around their spending and their saving. I, I wouldn't say that age plays a big role here, but definitely age is, is connected to your life moment, right? So let's say that I'm a, a young parent, for example, and then it could be a young parent to be 25 years old, right? At the same time that I have some young people that they had no kids at all. They are just finishing their units. They're just getting, being got graduated. So their, the, their moment, the moment they're living their lives, they are different. Even they have like the same life and the same perception about life, but things change. So the context is different. 
in, in the sense, I mean, what we tried to do was detach a bit the individual, not the individual, how can I say a group of individuals by age or nationality, we try to break this down into situations, right? So into the context that they are living. And then this is when, this is when make, this is what makes financial education very tricky because for us designers now, right? So we are developing products for a specific group of people or for a specific We need to understand those situations. We need to understand those contexts to provide the right experiences and then help them to make the right decisions based on their situation at the moment. And this is what makes very, I think very, very tricky because it doesn't matter if I'm developing something for a 45 years old, single guy that earns a tons of money. I'm not thinking about a 45 years old married guy with two or three kids and, and then the information and the service and the experience that we need to deliver to those two people, they're different. So it's, it's a combination of like several things. It's always about the context and, and what's coherent to those people, to those individuals than anything else. Yeah, I think it's a super valid point. I, I believe that looking only at demographics might be a trap because yeah. as you said, 45 years old guy, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. And, and we have to look deeper and to understand these different user groups based on their jobs, pains and gains rather than their demographics. However, there are certainly some generational differences, at least I've observed some in the, in the studies that I've conducted. It's if we, if we think about different generations and for example, their trust in financial institutions, I see a big shift there. Like if we, if we think about more baby boomers, generation X type of people, their whole financial experience was usually in context with some uh, professional advisors will it be their bank consultant or some, some financial advisor, and they have a huge trust in these, uh, type of institutions uh, and at the same time, they didn't have that much uh, knowledge available. So they rely on somebody else's opinions and taking care of their money. Whereas now, if we think about teenagers nowadays, or people even in our age, I hear this opinion quite often that. They do not trust in banks, at least in this old type of institutions, because uh, typically they try just to sell their products for a commission and not to truly think about what's good for, for consumers. So that's, that's one change. And the other is obviously the number of informational channels that are available to people. Like nowadays it's YouTube articles, financial apps, TikTok influencers, you name it. And it's, it seems like people nowadays, young people nowadays have, have more informational sources to, to educate themselves and to take take the knowledge from. But I actually checked some, I checked some statistics because I was super curious. So it seems they have more information sources. They, they, they should be better informed. They, they should have higher financial literacy. And this is something that I don't fully understand, but at least from the studies that I looked into, it seems that even though they, the generation Z is uh, digital natives and, and are, are having access to all kind of information 24 seven, they're still less financially proficient than their parents. So, and at the same time, they have all the burden of taking financial decisions on their shoulders because they don't have this bank advisor who would 
just look at their money and say, listen, I, I think you should open a bank account. I, I, you should open a savings account now, or you should start investing. It's all on them and they have just much more responsibility when it comes to financial decisions. It seems that there's a lot of moments in which we're really trying to figure out how much do we customize and how much do we allow the user to customize? So it's a question of, do we knowing something about a user then allow this kind of content that we're showing and the advice that we're giving to be customized? Or do we give everyone this plethora of options? Where's that line again of guidance? Because if we know a bit, we can customize, but if you customize too much, then you might be eliminating some of the needs of particular people without again making an assumption that that's not 100% correct. Right. There's, there's always a, the, the thin line between too much customization versus none, but I still believe we, we should have a trust in, in consumers knowing what's best for them. And first of all, we should learn as much as possible beforehand, before even coming with a solution. But what, once it's there, we have to acknowledge that there are different types of people and, and even among our, our users, there will be, there will be some differences. So giving them the choice that is, uh, not about everything, but in the, not in every aspect, but about the things that they prefer. And it's, it's, I think, crucial to build a trust and to build interest and, and to see, to be seen as a, as a partner in, in the user's eyes. Yeah. I would be a bit more provocative in my answer. I would say that it depends. It depends on the intention behind the service or, or what we're providing to them or they want, or the kind of experience that we want to give to them. Right. I think giving, giving freedom of choice is one of the basic heuristics that we have in design. So you are here to do whatever you want and we're providing the right service and the right system to, to achieve what you need. But at the same time, what's the intention behind of our services? We are still talking about businesses. We are still talking about goals, business goals, but at the same time being very responsible about the outcomes and, and the results of our actions as a businesses and as service. But I think, uh, but I mean, if we think about the millennials again, because this is the biggest chunk of the society that, that most of the digital services, they are being designed. It is a combination of both. Like you, you trust them. I mean, I think you need to, to give freedom to, to the people, to our users or right, to our customers to choose whatever they want, give freedom to them. This is what they want. But at the same time, they, we need to be exactly what to say to all like this, this sense of trust, right? They need to trust their, the services that we are offering. We have a few, I'm not competitors, but we have a few similar services. It was in Robinhood or services like that, like investments, when they, they, they popularize it or they, they democratize, right? The, the investment services, they gave too much like freedom to the users that it became, they became harmful for a few of them because they were not ready for this kind of freedom or like they didn't have a financial literacy to, to use this kind of services. So it's, it's, it's about intention, business goals, but also I think a very big responsibility when it comes to this society and then the audience that we're impacting. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good point actually, that especially when it comes to finances, it's a different thing when you can customize just the view of your app and the amount of content that you see versus if you have really influence upon everything, uh, including your financial steps that, that probably we should be the one guiding people rather than letting them choose without preparation, let's say. Yeah, I think your point, Felipe, about, you know, back in maybe uh, a couple generations ago, it was more that people trusted uh, a bank advisor or even in, depending on the, the country that you're in, there's still 
a lot of reliance on a bank advisor or someone that's your contact at a bank. And so I think from my perspective, I've seen, you know, with millennials, it's that we have so much information and also, you know, the Gen Z as well, but there's still this, this need for trustworthy information, you know, building trust and having some type of source that's, and I mean, it kind of touches on obviously the a larger topic of fake news and stuff, just fake information and where are you getting you know, the most reliable information? So it does seem like an, an interesting challenge for us in any kind of fintech space of, you know, how do we create trust with customers, but also customers know that we are a business and we have our own KPIs, but what is the advice or resources that we can give to people for them to make the right decision, which there are some legal restrictions we have. If you're not building with a proper financial advisor as a part of your team, you can't give certain advice. So it does seem to be a bit of a challenge to try to figure out where we can give advice and give people the right tools to make the right decisions. Yeah. Last week, I've, I've happened to talk to one of the participants in the studies and this lady said that I, I asked something about the financial education and how she's go, how she goes about it. And she said that, yeah, she received a book from her, her boyfriend about how to manage money. She reads some articles, she listened to some podcasts, but she understands none of it. It's just that, especially the, the financial type of media sometimes feel, feels very exclusive and feels that there is a high threshold that you have to, you have to have certain background knowledge and information to start digesting and understanding it. So maybe that's something that, that is worth considering. And that's something that we should think about that the way how the knowledge is presented, because I don't think I, I've never heard of users complaining about the amount of knowledge. It was more to your point, Philippe, that the, the quality of, of information and the, the right information, the information that can be trusted and in the same time is, is digestible and easy to, to understand. That's the challenging part, I think. Yeah, and I totally agree. And then it's a matter of providing the right information in the right context and the right time. So what we're talking about here is about the basic, basic education about finance that nobody had before. And then they start to read the books, articles, and things about financing and investment, et cetera. Definitely they are not under anything of this because they, they never had a, a, a education that could prepare them to this moment of their lives. One parallel that we can do that's very interesting is the, the cryptocurrencies, right? So we had the Bitcoin boom around, I guess, 2014, 15, 16, something like that. How many? People start to think about investing money in cryptocurrencies without being prepared for that. How many people lost money because of that? How many people start to get in contact with investments for the first time just because of the boom of cryptocurrency? It is, and then most of them they they just learned about like how to deal with those kind of things because cryptocurrencies is very very close to how the stock markets work, right? So. You're investing something, some asset, and then it can grow, it can, you know, retreat and etc. But nobody was prepared to these things because they never knew about that. And then they just learned about this two, three or four years ago. So today we have a, a big variant, a variety of cryptocurrencies. We have so many services today that help you to sell and buy different kinds of cryptos all around the world. And then people are more literate than that. And they are feeling more comfortable to use it, but they learn by using so this one thing that we need to pay attention that every time that you're providing a new service to them, they, people will learn by use. And then we have a very interesting problem in design and overall, and then we discuss about this all the time, and especially with our UX writers, people don't read. 
but how to provide the right piece of information that they will care about reading. It's, it's cool to think about that, like how to, to provide and, and build the knowledge built by B, right? So it's not like dropping the full knowledge, the full content, the full information at once, how you can build this, this knowledge or this literacy in an evolutionary way and not at once. Yeah, people don't read it. It's a very <laughs> common problem of, of UX writers and, and designers, I believe. And I think, I think I, I can totally agree with that, but I also think that, um, well, people do read if the, as you said, if the, if the information is presented in the right context, in the right format, in the, in a nutshell, and not like we have a lot of examples from the German market that there is five sentences, five very long sentences that you have to go through to understand. And even after reading it, especially in the uh, banking industry, you still don't understand what you've, you, what you have written. So it's a, it's a tricky part, but I believe it's, it's doable just, yeah, with, with crafting it uh, carefully. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think to that point, referencing a little bit of the, the research both of you have done, I found that one tricky thing is really getting the most authentic feedback from end user testing. So we've mentioned a couple of times that it, you really have to understand your users before you find them the right solution. I mean, understand the, the problems and the jobs to be done before just coming up with solutions. But I find that people sometimes act a bit differently when you're using prototypes or doing testing with hypotheticals or using fake money. Imagine you have a thousand dollars or a thousand euros in your account and you're doing this. It feels a bit different than when someone is actually moving their, their actual money around. So any reflections on, on how to really figure out the, the right way to get feedback from users when you're not able to get them hundred percent in the context of dealing with their own money? Well, yeah, it, it is super tricky. I agree because on one hand, when doing research, we have to always protect users, respect their uh, privacy. And on the other hand, we, we still want to get the most authentic feedback about our products. And yes, I, I've also seen the uh, differences in quality of observations when comparing testing prototypes with fake data and uh, real user data. I think, first of all, we have to ask ourselves how important is to how necessary is to use the real information. Because if we test a checkout or if we test a form design, then watching users type their own information can really reveal some more diverse issues or errors than, than if all users just enter the same fake information. But if we are testing the navigation or if we're testing just the general feeling, the general perception of a product, perhaps it is less crucial than to, to make them use their sensitive information. But even in, in the cases when we can't test real user data, I still, it's, I still believe it's, it's possible to make the experience as authentic as possible. For example, if we, if we think about the way how prototypes work, if the fields that, that people have to click on are not auto-populated, but participants still have to enter some information, even the fake one, um, if it, it makes a whole lot of difference because otherwise, if they just have to tap somewhere and the information is magically there, their experience is of course now nowhere near to the real situation, but people tend to not even focus on what they are doing and they are, they don't have much reflection about it because it's all very simple. You just tap, 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 and it's, it's that easy, ease of use five, but so, so 
I know that from the designer's perspective, creating the more sophisticated prototypes, which are fully customizable, it is tricky, but I believe in the, in this important studies, when we really want to un uncover all the issues, we should let them at least input data in the field, let them choose the amount, for example. Even if it's still not the, the real data, it will just engage more. So that, that, that might be um, one thing. But I still happen to test real users' account, even in the banking industry. I think it is still possible. It's just the, the matter if it's really necessary. And if we decide, yes, it is necessary, we can't use any other method. I think we just have to prepare the study and the potential participants carefully to what is going to happen, to let them know beforehand that we are going to use the, your real account. We would like to share your screen. We would like to uh, record the, the meeting, but we, we should give them possibility to ask any so, uh, sort of question. And we should also make them sure that we do care about the, uh, their sensitive data and uh, that we're going to protect it. Sometimes it, it helps to ensure or to propose, to give them a choice to switch off the camera so that the face won't be visible or to ensure that we'll scrape and blur out all sensitive information from the video. For example, the credit card number or login credentials. Uh, and if they typing the, their sensitive data, we can propose that they, uh, we can suggest that they stop the, the mm, recording for a while or stop sharing the screen for a while for this moment when the, when the, they typing in sensitive data. So there are some ways to alleviate potential pains or to overcome their fears, to let them feel comfortable. So that we still have the, the quality of information, the quality of observation as we want to, but participants do not feel that we somehow, you know, that the, the line between the, the way how they feel comfortable was, was override. So yeah, really about, it's all about making people comfortable and um, trusting us, uh, letting them know that we care and that we will treat their data seriously. I think that's, that's, uh, that one that's from my experience helps a lot. I mean, I'm not a specialist, but the only thing that it could add is being also intentional behind with what we're testing and what we're evaluating. I think it's very, based on my experience, it's very, very, very hard to get a, a real scenario to deliver it to the user. It doesn't matter what's happening. It's more like observation. I mean, the, the only way that I see seeing a real scenario happen is more like an observation and not recording, not testing, just checking what they're doing and then asking questions uh, and, and just to try to extract uh, their feelings at the moment. But it's very hard to test real scenarios with them. And, and the responses usually, and then it's very funny when we have like, some prototypes and we're testing some interaction with money. The way that they explain things are different from the way that they are interacting with that things. And if we, if we are not paying attention on that, when we're conducting the user tests, uh, it's very easy to be misled. You have an example of that we can take up? Yeah, I mean, there was, there was this prototype that we had at Dreams. I don't know if you can talk much about it, but we had this prototype. So we were talking about like sharing savings. And, and it was funny because this, this was more like, how can you share savings, right? With friends, with family, et cetera. And during, during the, the interviews, the user testing, we were interacting. How do we interact with this? How do you add more people? 
they were saying when they were creating that dreams, the creating that savings account or like the savings package, they were saying that hey, it would be very cool to share this with my wife or with my friends. But when they start to interact with those things, they always stop it in the moment that they would start to share because they were, they stopped to, because at the moment they start to think about, okay, but the money that I'm sharing is, is still mine or is ours. How much I'm saving and how much this person is saving. I'm saving this amount and then they are saving this amount minus that. Are we sharing the same money? And then they start to think about it is in the end of the day, at the end of the day, it wasn't that cool. It's cool sharing, but the way that they talk, yeah, I want to share, but the way they would share, they used to think twice. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the realities that we need to pay attention on those things to understand they want to share things. They wanted to share things at that time, but on their own terms and really concerned about the money that they're sharing, if it, it, it still belongs to them or not, or it's already automatically shared in, in one single account or two separated accounts, there was a few things that we had to, to really pay attention. It was a tricky one, but it's very cool. It's so funny when, whenever you ask about something and, and people said yes, and then in the reality, it turns out that it actually, yes, but maybe in different circumstances. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but that's the whole tricky part about testing, yeah. right? Relying on people's opinion, especially when it comes to the future and the prediction of, of the, their, their own behavior in the future is, uh, is not super, yeah, valuable. Yeah. I love, I love the comment when people say, yeah, I think peep, some people would probably use this. I'm like, <laughs> okay, but would you use it? And they're like, oh no, 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 definitely not. <laughs> it's pretty cool, but not for me. So how, how's it cool though? Yeah, yeah, people want to be polite, I guess. They just, yeah, you know, that, that's why sometimes I, I prefer in some cases to use unmoderated sessions because then there is no moderator that you can potentially offend and then no feelings too hard. And people, they, they just they happen to be more, much more often and critical and, and just, you know, tell honestly what they think as there is no human at the other side, side of the screen that they, they try to be friendly and then. Yeah, polite too. Yeah, I've, I've found that, uh, especially with, with working in, in any kind of finance, people get very, very emotional, I think, in some user testing. Maybe not so, so much so when we're going through prototypes, but doing any kind of interviews, I think. I personally did some work with, with savings in a variety of different ways. And whenever we're asking about, oh, are you happy with your current savings? A lot of times people get very embarrassed and say, you know, oh, no, I haven't really been saving super well. And, and they feel bad. And then it, it almost puts you in a position of feeling a bit like a therapist. You're like, you kind of want to say, like, it's okay, I'm not... I'm not, I'm not coming not from judging. a perspective in which, yeah, I'm not judging, I'm not coming from a perspective of, of saying that I'm the one that's, you know, the elitist saver, but I think it seems to be a bit of a challenge to make people feel comfortable and say, you know, we're, we're just trying to understand habits. We're not here to, to tell you that you're, you know, you're doing it right or wrong. I almost started to, to, uh, observe this, as you mentioned that during some sessions, I feel like a therapist, uh, just because people just become vocal about certain things that they just don't have time to, to really think through during the, their busy days, when they start to explain me why they choose this and not that, and why they behave certain way, they just realizing certain things and start at the end of the session, have a completely different conclusion than when they started. So it's sometimes, it's sometimes also interesting to participants as well, I believe. Yeah. There's a lot of things behind they, their behavior that they never think about. And then they start to be vocal about that day. They start to feel ashamed. 
or even uncomfortable. It's, it's very interesting. I, I love public some moderated user tests because you really get it deeply, especially when it comes to money and financial literacy and savings kind of investments. People, people love to talk about it, but not really. Again, they love to talk about it because they know the importance of that. But when they start to be vocal, they realize, I don't think that I know much about it. Well, but as we talked about it, everyone has their own particular context and a lot of different habits. And it's always a constant challenge to figure out, uh, what's the best way to make, to make people feel well, they have control over all, all of it. But yeah, I think that wraps up our time. Again, I really appreciate you guys chatting. I think it's super interesting. Again, we could go on for, for a whole podcast season about all the different things that we touched on. Great. It was really nice to, to be here. And yeah, thanks for the, for inviting, for it. thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Melanie, for making this happen. The Sender is sponsored by the design team at Klarna. It's produced by Jumotra Andersson, Francesca Cutulo, Melanie Lovebird, Anusha Hussain, and Rachel Rosenson. To learn more about your regular career paths on the Klarna design team, head to klarna.com careers. A special thanks to Aljan Högström for having music throughout this episode. Got questions you want to hear other designers answer? Write us at thesender at klarna.com. See you next time.